Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. We talk to all kinds of interesting people through a spiritual lens on this program. And, uh, you know, we kind of go sideways whenever we want to. But um, there's been some very interesting souls that have arrived on this particular program. And I've always enjoyed talking to them. We just recently had Bob Ray on the show. Uh, we've also had uh, Tar Sloan on the show. Uh, all kinds of different personalities who you don't really think about their spiritual lives because you know them for what they do in the world, not what they be in the world. So I, I always find that interesting. Uh, I, uh, you know, full disclosure, I come at it from a Jewish lens. I'm an ordained spiritual director, but I'm not a rabbi. Okay, so let's not go there because then I'll get some phone call from some official rabbi outfit that'll say, you're not a rabbi. That's you nuts. And I don't want that. I don't want, you know, like a Lubavitcher van to show up outside my house and, you know, put decals on my front window saying, not a rabbi. So I just have to clarify that before I start the shows. Um, uh, one of the people I've, well, I've been friends with for a long time, but always wanted to have a conversation about the spiritual side of life as well as the artistic side of life is uh, one of this country's finest musicians, uh, Juno Award winner, um, a collaborator uh, par excellence. He has always found a way to mix beautiful kinds of musics together and bring them into a whole new light by doing so. Uh, and uh, a very talented trumpeter as well. Uh, he's played the horn in my home, so I can vouch for that one. His name is David Bookbinder, and he joins me now. Hello, Mr. Bookbinder. Hello, Mr. Ben Mer Rabbi Ben Mergi. How are you? <laughs> Rebbe. Rebbe to you, Rebbe. buddy. Rebbe. Well, you know, I mean, clinically, rabbi just means teacher. I don't know. Right? And so. you, yes, you are nothing. It's not that. <laughs> All right. Kansas City. Like, I thought you were from St. Louis, Missouri, but you're from Kansas City, Missouri. Am I right? Well, I didn't spend a lot of time there. I, we left when I was six months old. So Six I months? Yeah. So I have no memory of it. And, uh, did go, I remember like being six years old and going back there to with my mother and brother to visit family friends, but other than that, I've never been there. So you grew up in St. Louis. St. Louis until I was around ten, then we came here. So yeah, St. Louis definitely had a big impact, and actually, uh, I don't know if we'll get into talking about this, but uh, sort of the life that my parents were living, and I guess by extension that we were living, was quite uh, eventful. In a relatively short period of time, so I feel like I had a okay, lot of. I, come on, I, I had a lot of. Why. I had a lot of uh, St. Louis impact on my life. Put it that All way. right. So, what do you mean by eventful? Well, uh, so <clears throat> I'm such an old guy that uh, when I was a kid, it was right in the middle of the '60s. I grew up, uh, you know, I was born in the end, tail end of '59, and uh, and my parents were very. Uh, involved, I could say politically involved, but kind of involved in everything. Um, uh, so they were certainly involved in the anti-war movement. They were involved in the civil rights movement. Uh, my father, I believe, marched on Selma with Martin Luther King and uh, his work. He was trained as a social worker, but his work took him into anti-poverty programs. So he was working in different uh, underserved communities from in St. Louis and East St. Louis, and I think also in West Virginia, he used to go there. So there was that aspect. My mother got involved in the very early feminist movement, I guess, second wave feminist movement. Um, and we even had 
key people in the St. Louis who came to St. Louis for uh, political reasons, both the first uh, organizer of the SDS in St. Louis, hmm. and then later the, the organizers of the first great boycott uh, from the United Farm Workers, both those folks lived in our house. Uh, so that all of this together and like then on top of it, going to uh, regular events in the kind of uh, political, cultural community had a huge impact on me as well. I'd say probably even more of an impact, you know, like the happenings and the rock bands and the light shows and, you know, a lot more stuff like that. So I think um, uh, both in terms of a sense of a world where change is possible and where change is uh, a really high um, value. It's value to make positive change in the world was something that my parents didn't just talk about, but uh, shared with us. What was that like? I mean, I, I've always wondered, certainly didn't grow up that way, but I've always wondered what would it have been like as a child to see these people come and go, how much of what they were and what they were about at the time did rub off on you in, in that time? And how did you feel as a child in that? Well, and it's a great question, Ralph, but it, it, uh, I would say that, and this is kind of my orientation anyway, that my point of entry to them was as them, them as people. I mean, I was, you know, if you're talking about those folks, I was, you know, probably between the ages of seven and nine where I was really, or six and nine where I was connected with them. And, and actually through each for through, through the two, well, actually the first guy, uh, uh, since we have time, I'll take a little, uh, discursion and say that the guy who, um, who worked for the SDS was a guy who came from New York What's the SDS? For people? Oh, SDS was the Students for Democratic Society, right. founded in Port Huron, Michigan in 1964. And it was the, the central student or youth uh, form of mobilizing against the war. I think they were, they were looking at, you know, in their original statement, it was about how to transform society. But the core of their activity was an anti-war activity. So, right, so this guy from the SDS. SDS came from, and he was a fascinating guy. He was like Zelig-like kind of guy who was, you know, he was there for everything, right? He was, he ended up being part of the early gay rights movement. He was there at Stonewall. Uh, and then uh, completely um, sort of out of left field. He also turns out, and I didn't know, I didn't know this when I was a kid. This kind of came clear many, many years later, but he turns out he was a, an incredible whistler. He was such an amazing whistler that in later years he would whistle opera with symphony orchestras and he'd, uh, he whistled, I can't remember, what was the name of the bird in Charlie Brown and the Charlie Brown animated specials? Uh, Woodstock. Woodstock. He whistled for Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> he was Woodstock, basically. And, uh, you know, anyway, I didn't know that at the time. But he came and, you know, and he was probably 19 or 20. You know, and so when I was seven or eight, my brother was a year older. And um, uh, so he and then the other folks who came with the great boycott were a couple. In fact, I think his name was Matt. I can't remember her name. And he was like a working class farm, you know, kind of kid who grew up with his parents picking. And she was uh, uh, at the time it was called Mexican, Mexican American, which then became Chicano. Uh, whose 
family was also involved and they were a couple and they came and stayed. So with those three and then also the people around them because their friends would come to the house, um, they were people, right? And they were interested in us and my brother and I were pretty engaged and we knew how to hang out around adults, I think. So we were interesting in a way, I think, and because we were interested in what they were doing. Uh, so it was a social thing as much as anything, but it was also, I feel like I got an imprint of people who were living what they believed in. And that was something yeah. you could taste, you know, that wasn't just an idea. It was a experience. Yeah. So what informed your parents, fueled your parents in social justice? Was it, did it come from a Jewish perspective or was it just oh, secular? Well, both. I mean, you know, they were the perfect example of left-wing American atheist Jews and we went to shul. You know, like <laughs> we didn't once we came to Toronto, but, you know, in, in St. Louis, uh, we went to B'nai Amuna and, uh, you know, I went to like uh, after I went to Hebrew school there sort of after after regular school a couple times a week. Um, just as an aside, and I'm, we're probably going to talk about this, I've been living on and off in New Orleans, and I just, in fact, it was uh, uh, coronavirus chased me out of there, you know, sure. last month. But um, on my way down in February, I went back to St. Louis and uh, just to like to go and see it. I haven't seen it since I was 17 because we went down to visit then. Um, uh, and so I saw all these places. So, yeah, B'nai Umuna, Synagogue, which is now uh, Art Center. Um, and uh, How did you yeah. feel when you were there in St. Louis? It was amazing. I, we'll talk about that in a sec if we want to, but the, just to focus on this so I don't lose my train. Basically, yeah. um, you know, I think they were, they came from slightly different backgrounds. My father's from New York and his parents were, you know, relatively secular. They're incredibly Jewish culturally, but I don't feel like synagogue going was a big part of their thing. They just lived and breathed Jewish life and culture, right? All their friends were Jewish. They were, uh, both of my grandfathers were immigrants from Europe. One when he was three, the other when he was 18, and both grandmothers were born in the States. So my mother's side, they were um, modern Orthodox. And so she grew up in that world very much. And, uh, uh, um, and I think, uh, I'm not like it's it's interesting, right? On my father's side, it's very clear to see there was no direct social justice roots in terms of family. He was a bit of the black sheep of their family. Um, everybody else was very mainstream American and very much about business and uh, and uh, you know, kind of like assimilating. Uh, and I don't just mean in a Jewish sense. I mean in terms of you know the consumer life and uh, right, right. kind of, you know, just taking that as a given, sort of the mainstream culture, whereas he was always looking at it from the outside. Um, and and I think he kind of had that natural bent somehow, but I think he was also, both of them were, I wouldn't say radicalized, but they were politicized by the left-wing Zionist movement. So, uh, and that's where they met. So the kibbutz-related Zionist movement which for them, and certainly for my mother, was very much, she experienced that as a movement of national liberation, right? This is, this is here uh, as a redress to the, um, you know, anti-Semitism. And my mother experienced it. I mean, she now says she doesn't remember this, but uh, she is 89. And she told me all the time I was growing up, of stories of growing up in Baltimore. And they grew up, they were poor. 
Her father owned a not very successful candy store in a non-Jewish neighborhood. Uh, so she grew up in a non-Jewish neighborhood and she had the experience. She had plenty of friends, but she also had a lot of anti-Semitic experience, including a teacher in a public school who in front of all of her non-Jewish classmates stood her up and said, just want you to know that her people killed Christ. <sighs> so as you can imagine, this led to a fair number of ass whoopings or, you know, the, the social... Yeah correlate to that carrying on 2000 years of a fine tradition exactly yeah. why should yeah why, why should why, it be any different now yeah it's worked so well for so long <laughs> for so she many should've, she should have yelled back it's an it was an accident he hit his head on the curb right was, yeah or or as lenny bruce would say it was a party it got out of hand what i don't know what <laughs> um anyway so i you know she didn't she didn't really speak about it in those terms but those all that was there right and so she had a very well-developed sense, I think, of social justice that for her ran through her Zionist uh, roots, which were very important to her, left-wing, like kibbutz, Zionist, changing the world. Interestingly, many years later, she flipped and became a fairly ardent anti-Zionist in her mind for the same reasons. Right. Um, uh, and my father, um, I think, was, I, like, I actually never asked him, I really understood his own roots of Zionism. I mean, he went, he was in the Second World War. He enlisted when he was too young <laughs> to get away from his parents, he said, um, at 17 and uh, saw like the very end of action in the Philippines. Um, and I think it was in the period, and it was part of the army of occupation in Japan. It was in a period after that, when he was on the first, like on unemployment insurance that they gave soldiers when they came back. And he spent all of his time, he lived in Queens with his parents and he spent all of his time going to Broadway shows and hang out on 52nd Street and listening to jazz. Huh. Um, and something in that period sparked his social conscience because it didn't, he didn't grow up with it for sure. And even if you look at uh, photo albums of pictures he took when he was part of the Army of Occupation to Japan, there are some you know, casually racist uh, names for different Japanese folks. So, you know, you can see that that he was not beyond that, but then something woke up in him. Yeah, I mean, the whole society had names for Germans and Japanese people yeah. that, you know, we grew up as kids watching war movies with all those epithets uh, hurled about as if they were nothing. What do you think there was something about jazz? That I don't know, maybe for your father? Well, he never talked about it until I got into jazz. It wasn't until, you know, it wasn't like something that he was into music. They were both, they were both very, uh, you know, creative or wanting to be creative. I mean, there were creative people, no question, because they lived outside of kind of the normal mainstream. Uh, my mother was actually a dancer. Um, uh, but I just want to, I'm just going to jump back for a sec to say, I would say that the, uh, that there was definitely, whether it was thought through or not, um, there was definitely partial root in Judaism and their social conscience and their uh, desire for change. And I'm pretty sure my mother translated what was ever, whatever was, you know, messianic in her upbringing. I don't mean in terms of being a messianic Jew, just in terms of the Messiah aspect of the Mashiach aspect of Judaism. What she learned, she was one, you know, not uncommonly translated that into uh, secular social action. Hmm. Um, 
and I would say for both of them, there always was a strong cultural, they recognize the importance of the cultural component there. That's so interesting because they had such a passion. I mean, both of them sound like they didn't just do life. They did it passionately. Yes. And they really, you know, and they, they really, um, I just can't stress enough. If I think about my life, they and my brother's life, they modeled living what you believe. Right. And, and, uh, it wasn't so much that they said you should do whatever you, you know, in your life, you should do whatever you want. They just did that and, you know, made choices that were not about career specifically, more about what could they do to further their beliefs in the world and what they thought should happen. So how does that manifest itself in your life? Well, I, you know, I felt, I feel like in some ways when I first decided to be a musician, I had to, I had a kind of struggle to justify it to myself because strangely, but because, you know, I guess the message or inherent message, in my parents' lives was, you know, you must fight for social change. You must fight for justice. You got, um, this is what is essential in life. Somehow at a certain point, they didn't say this to me, but I translated to that. Oh, you know, music is frivolous or it's not going right. to, it's not going to help anybody who's suffering directly. It's, you know, it's for what I want. Um, so there was a bit of that, but uh, but I certainly <laughs> I certainly think in ways that made them less than happy. Once I was a young adult, uh, I always lived, um, have always lived, based on uh, my sense of what was right to do, right? What what I was called to bring into the world. I think, uh, although I didn't necessarily think of it that way when I was younger, but you know, just to follow. Uh, follow the thread of my story and the story being um, a question of what is it mine to do in the world? So that's how I would talk and say it now. Right. Right. And, you know, after being a, you know, it, I already had started to see this because as you know, although my intention was just to set out and be the best trumpet player I could be and you know, a combination of circumstance, interest, and and also the fact that I didn't start really playing seriously until I was 20 and I never went to university and I was kind of self-taught, although with incredible private teachers. I had a long period where I was kind of making a living and studying on my own at the same time. So somehow that not having a direct sort of quick line into just getting a whole bunch of work playing the trumpet, led me to, and that and interest led me to do a whole bunch of different things. So for years I've been organizing stuff. Like I organized, I created the Ashkenaz Festival. Right. Um, envisioned, and then with a lot of help, created the Ashkenaz Festival, which is still running. I mean, if I, it, I guess it's going to be canceled, but it, it was coming up on its 25th year this year. Um, so that's a festival of Jewish culture, of Jewish which, culture. which I've always taken great offense to. I know, because of the name. <clears throat> because there's no Sephardim in there. It's just Ashkenazis as except, Jews. Except that from the very beginning, there always were Sephardim. But leave it, let's granted, leave that one for now. Granted, but still. Let, let's leave that. It's like now. people with my parents going, you don't speak Yiddish. It's like, well, what doesn't come in handy in North Africa to speak yeah, Yiddish? Yeah, exactly. It's not the way I, it works. I'll just say this. And actually, there was... Uh, a woman um, who I'm going to blank on her first name now, of course, but uh, 
prominent Sephardic artist in a, a thing that in a way moved me more than almost anything I can think of that happened around the festival got in touch with me because she felt exactly the same way. And she was really struggling with it because she thought it was a really good festival. And yet for her, it, it replicated all of the um, uh, experience she had of being invisible. Right. Uh, growing up in Canada, right. and which I completely understood. Yeah. And all I could say then, and I wasn't even in my defense, I wasn't trying to defend myself, I was just trying to explain where it came from, was that for me, that's what the focus was, right? Like that I, it came out of the burgeoning uh, renaissance of Yiddish culture. So it was a festival of new Yiddish culture. And I don't, and I never felt like there was anything to apologize for. It's just what it was. I never said uh, at the beginning, right? Because at the beginning, you start with a focus. I never said we're doing a festival of pan Jewish culture. It didn't have Sephardic in it, it didn't have Mizrahi. You well, know, no, it it's, have... it's, it's the blind spot of the dominant culture in anything that, well, that it, you well, don't see. Like we growing up in, uh, in Toronto yeah. as Moroccans, yeah. we were never asked to be part of any association of Jewish associations at the time. We didn't really exist. Which, That's what I was going to say. Did you but, exist? I, you well, know. we didn't exist yeah. to people, even though we had yeah. a, over 100 families right from the beginning. Yeah. But then we kept growing. But I actually, once I'd gone to Israel, felt better about the fact that people in North America didn't know what to do with us because they were certainly not treating us well in Israel. Right. So, you, right? so if, they, if they had noticed you were there, it would have been exactly. a lot <laughs> It would have been like, okay, and these, these guys aren't us. And instead, it was, you know, the conversation was, I turned to a friend on the way to school and say, do you like olives? And they go, olives? No. I go, what do you mean no? Like, what do you eat? And they go, pickles. <laughs> oh, okay. In my house, we eat olives. Like you know, it always comes down to food. Hey, well, yeah, Mediterranean <clears throat> diet. You know, that's and, right, and, and Middle Eastern diet. So yeah, there was that, that always, always that piece. But you know that even within Ashkenazic Judaism, there's you know 18 branches of the tree. Right. So that's right. It, it can well, be and, very confusing. For well, and my and my choice at the time was to uh, was to stay with, you know, it was called Ashkenaz and to focus on that, this renaissance that was happening. And at the same time to just begin to include everything from the pan Jewish and non-Jewish world. Like in the very first festival, I had a project that included Simon Shaheen, this great Palestinian uh, uh, oud and violin player um, doing a kind of collaboration with a Jewish musician. So. Okay. So in that first move one, on. that, that, no, no, cause that's a tripwire, yeah, right? Yeah. Because you have, ne well, first of all, you're married to a Palestinian woman. So uh, you have never shied away, in my seeing of you, yeah. of saying, uh, this isn't about us against them. This is us. We're all us. And yes. even in all the kinds of musics that you've put together, you, you, your point seems about humanity, not about tribe. Even right. though you come very in a very strong way from tribe. Yes. Right. So yes. Talk, talk to me about that mix. Okay. Well, that's you sort of, that's the core of it, I think, because um, I'll just back up and say, for some reason that there's no reason at all. It just happens to be how I was made. Uh, I've always been fascinated in general by people's stories, like the real, like the, the, the really, um, 
beautiful, dense, kind of complex stories of people's lives. <clears throat> and also, I always had a sense in some intuitive way about the importance of the ancestral line, right? Of being connected into the uh, past of who we are, each are, right? So my own personal thing. And <clears throat> so I was the one always, not always, sometimes I wish I did it a lot more, but uh, there were many examples of me being the one sitting down with my grandparents and pushing them to tell me things. And I even, uh, uh, at one point we had a real, real tape recorder and I uh, taped my grandfather. And of, of course the tape is gone, which I'm terribly yeah. sad about, but because, yeah. you know, I mean, maybe this comes out of the fact that like a lot of immigrants um, to North America, uh, the value, it was understood that the value was going to be found in shedding who you were as quickly as possible, right? To be able right. to assimilate. Avalon. You know the movie? Yes, Avalon? exactly. Yeah. exactly. Mary Levinson. Thank you, I asked thank Levinson. you for that. Yeah. Thank right, you for that reference. Yes. Right. So Baltimore, Avalon. So yeah. I, asked, I asked Levinson, why is it that you never overtly say anything about these people being Jewish at, during the interview that I did yeah. with him? And we ended up in a big argument because I was really offended. Yes. That these people are cutting the turkey and freaking exactly. out. Exactly. You cut the turkey. <laughs> the man right. is saying, you cut the turkey. Yeah. It's obviously supposed to be pay Passover. Yeah. Right? That's what it was. Yeah. But, it, but it's American Thanksgiving. It's this, it's that. Right. But everything was about being an American, not right. about being a Jew. And I just right. thought, you're hiding under the bushel. So we had a big right. fight about that. Yeah. So that, you know, but my point is that I was always interested in people's stories and I was interested in the ancestral story. And I somehow, and yet, I was completely um, enraptured starting at the age of 14. I mean, before that, I think growing up in all kinds of music, and especially first in folk blues uh, and then jazz. And, you know, to the degree where to me this felt like that's where my life would have to be, is mm. somehow in this form, it spoke to me so deeply and powerfully and has never stopped doing that in a way that feels completely native in a sense to who I am. So that's an interesting, and that was long before I'd ever really heard klezmer music, right? It wasn't around when I was a kid. I'd never, right. I, not consciously, it was there like in the fringes. So but, how did you connect to it? How did well, you, I'm gonna play one of your songs in a second okay. from, from the from Okay, the I'll get to that in a sec, but just to, I wanna try and answer your question because it seems like central to so much of what yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do, which is, so we've got, you know, a strong cultural Jewish consciousness I have growing up that right. is tied from the very beginning to social change, sometimes in opposition to social change, but often at the center of it. I have parents who both, we do Shabbos every Friday, we go to shul, and they're out there trying to change the world, um, often uh in collaboration with African-Americans who were a very important part of the social circle, who also then are the carriers and creators of this incredible um, music tradition and cultural tradition that I get exposed to somewhat directly. And then once we move here, just by listening to recordings and going out to hear people play. And somehow all of that begins to create this awareness and then my interest in people's stories it begins to create create an awareness that there is this nexus in a human being that is between the place of their 
uh, core story, which is the ancestral line, mm. and which generally is closer to being monocultural. Way less true now, way less true in Canada. If you look at my kid or many of her friends, they're all from mixed traditions, but I'm from an Ashkenazic Jewish tradition. Like you're from a Sephardic or Moroccan Jewish, you know, your lineage, that's kind of what yeah. it is, right? Yeah. Going back generations. So, and that is a profound anchor because you're in this stream of that story, right? And once right. you have kids, you understand that it doesn't end with you. You're just one part of this whole long thing. You have to, you have to relate to that in some way. And I think people who choose not to relate to that do it at their own, they lose from that fact, right? By having no relationship to that part of their story. But then there's the part of you that intersects, you know, in your everyday life and in your cultural life with the rest of the world. And so you have open to you the stories of all of humanity. And of course, because underneath the cultural, like the cultural, uh, uh, strata of who you are is incredibly important and central, I think, even if it's a mixed culture, mixed background. But there's someone below that. There's the fundament, and the fundament is the human, right? It was what does it mean to be in a body on this planet with a uh, that energy field that we call a soul and a spirit and a relationship to wider creation and a relationship to human history and into the land and all these things. Uh, and we all share that in common and we all create music and we all create culture and we all create language uh, and we all create ritual. So clearly we have way more that connects us than separates us. And in fact, the stuff between our cultures uh, that is different or is diverse uh, is just a greater enrichment. And without getting in the, for this moment into the question of cultural appropriation or any of that stuff, just to say that um, that I found that being rooted in the first, in some sense, helps open uh, the rest of it to me. And that there's a relationship between the two that is a conversation that can go on forever. Um, uh, and so, uh, I, you know, I've done so many things. I've, I've been identified as a Jewish artist for so long. And from the very beginning, I never liked it because... Mm. Because not because it was wrong in a sense, I've obviously been involved in Jewish culture, but because to me, in many people's minds, there's a limitation there because that is a thing that right. uh, separates and puts me or anyone else. You know, you've done a lot of stuff that's Jewish. If they look at you and go, "Yeah, you know, Ben Murgy is Jewing it up again," right? <laughs> that that doesn't really take into account of the complexity of who you are, or what you're interested in, or what you're even dealing with, right? Yeah, so, so one river, many many wells, right? Like there's just a whole yeah. bunch of ways to get to the fundament, as you called it, uh, underneath things. But right. some of us find a specific practice helps us to build a better well to get to that river underneath. Exactly. And that's and, what we do. Yes, and there's something really important about the specificity and also the resonance that you get with yeah. generations of people who've done the same practices, right? We do a Seder, we're not just benefiting from the form of the Seder, which is so beautiful and kind of open, but also very specific. It's also the fact that one, when we're doing that Seder, people around the world are also doing it. And also yeah. that it's been done for 2000, 3000 years, right? Right. 
So the um, other part of it, there's something else I wanted. Like the other part yeah. of it is, then you marry someone who is not Jewish, right? Who, and who politically, it's always fun for you to be able to say, "And this is my wife, Rula. She's Palestinian," and 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 watch people's confusion, right? Right? Yeah. Uh, at, at times, I've 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 been dying to tell people that <laughs> this is Rula. She's Palestinian. This is David. He's Jewish. Yeah. Um, so by doing that, you you tweak the the story, you tweak the ancestral thread, right? You do. What do you mean by tweak? Well, be, now there's you and her with different ancestral threads together, right? And and then you have a child, and then that child is the child of those threads coming together. Right. So there's this illusion we have of purity of race, even though oh, Jews are not a race. Excuse me. Fuck that. Right. Exactly. But the other part of that is we don't accept the hybrid nature of who we are, that right. we're all mutts. Right. 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 Uh, and so that when we, we see start... it lived, we yeah. think, no, no, you're not supposed to do that. And you say, yeah. But what, you, you're trying to tell me that Ukrainian Jews look like Ukrainians out of a coincidence. <laughs> you know, they married right. other people <laughs> who weren't Jewish, who were Ukrainian Catholics. That's how That's it right. works. Right. Yeah, exactly. And all the uh, uh, blue eyed yeah Polish Jews and, you know. yeah exactly all right listen I want to play a piece of music uh, okay one, one of the Bulgar pieces which one do you want to play uh well I, I'll ask you do you want something that is faux traditional or much more uh, contemporary kind of um interesting intellectual take on something Jewish well, that's the one I want the second, second one, one. Yeah. okay so play you know, you like the Title This one is called The Poets, They're All Yids. <laughs> David Bookbinder, The Poets, They're All Yids, The Flying Bulgar Klezmer Band, now The Flying Bulgar Band.
shouted at the poet, Are you one of us? One of us. No one's rose opening for no one. He is banished, blooming red as rust. Leaning out on the edge of life, living in a cloud of language dust. Shibboleth shouted at the poet, are you one of them or one of us? Flying Bulgar Band and No, no, it's the Flying Bulgar. It's called the Flying Bulgar Classical Band. Still? I thought hey, you took that even, out. Yeah, I did for a while, but you know what? Like I'm it doesn't I, we're not we haven't done anything except okay, for I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to be yeah, nice. I know. I know who who knows. But the, um now that uh especially in this world where we can't perform live, um one of the things I'm going to eventually get to is to start pumping that music out again. Because oh. a lot of it, a lot of it, especially the later stuff, nobody's heard or very few people have heard. And I want to both get it out there because there's still a massive amount of interest and also uh, monetize it a little bit. They're all Yids. The poets, they're all Yids. Is it good for the Jews? That's a big question. <laughs> Is it good, Is it good for, for the poets? Jews? Is it good for the poets? Because the poets are, the poets are all good the Jews. For the Jews. Well, I was hated when somebody would start naming how many poet laureate, no Nobel laureates were Jewish just to prove, you know, what wonderful people we were. And I just think you're missing the point. This is yes. not exceptionalism. It's, right. We are we are peoples among people. And I, I remember being in Israel doing um, a documentary and I was interviewing a guy in a, a West Bank settlement who had a radio show, a, a guy from Michigan. They're all from Michigan. And this guy was, you know, or talking, Brooklyn, or Brooklyn. Or Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah, well, that's yes. that's Jerusalem, but these guys were right. out, out in the sticks, so near Modine somewhere. So I'm I'm doing the thing with this guy, and uh, he says, you know, the the, the idea, I don't know why they talk about it, but the, the the idea is you have to come back, you have to come back, you have to come home, you have to come home. You're not really being a Jew if you don't come home. And I said, well, I actually don't see it that way. I think one of the greatest gifts of being a Jew is our diaspora is that we have been in all these cultures around the world. Yes. We've learned from all these people. Yes, some of them have really tried to murder us, and some of us succeeded. 
but that's not the only thing that happened. We also right. had an influence of the world and had an influence in the world. So when you started doing Diasporic Genius, I found that to be a very interesting extrapolation of so many of the things that I think you believe in, where you yeah. really want to explain that concept, because I loved that concept right from the beginning. Okay, well, that and was where I was headed uh, when we were talking about my parents' influence, because the right. thing I was going to say was that finally, when I started that about 10 years ago, and I will explain it in a sec, I realized I'd gone directly into my father's business. Because in a way, even though my father, for a lot of his working life, was a university professor, his true gift, and I think the place where he lived the most, was as an organizer. And he did do a lot of community organizing work, like I said previously, in the anti-poverty programs and in his kind of, you know, anti-war work. And uh, and then when he came to Canada, that's a whole another fascinating thing, the work that he did here until he became a prophet at York. And even at York, he was the guy who organized the union, um, uh, the, the, the faculty union. So um, so I find I realized, oh, I'm actually now in community organizing and no matter how hard I tried not to, I've also gone into my father's business. So, uh, but what was Diasport Genius? Diasport Genius, in a way, the concept still exists. The organization doesn't really, it's sort of dormant. But for about eight years, um, I began to uh, work with the idea that the power of creativity could be marshaled in a way that could might be transformative for not just artists, but for communities and could have an impact literally to the, down to the level of how we build our cities to uh, through the power of community organized creativity um, to activate both the people in the space to become much more uh, richly supportive of a powerful and engaged community life, right? And that one of the things that we were missing in the North America and in Canada was both the physical and in a way like the uh, energetic um, presence of the, the town square, the city square, you know, the Agora, the place where all roads would intersect where ideas, people, businesses, culture would ferment because there was the connection of all the different people there. And if you look at our cities, if we uh, ever had them, we've destroyed all of our kind of squares. And certainly, you know, the ones that happen within communities, right? Where people were not just the downtown kind of spaces that people might go to for a festival or something, but right. ones where life happens, right? The ones in North Africa where a guy sits at a crossroads with a, you know, a, a jar of olives and starts selling them. And then another guy comes up because he's got some wheat to sell and he sells that and a woman comes with some cloth. And now, oh, somebody starts making coffee. You know what I mean? And yeah. within several generations, you've got some buildings built up and they're regular, you know, Caravans coming through and all this stuff, yeah. right? Ideas come through and food comes through and, you know, all this stuff is in change and ferment and is being enriched by the uh, interrelationships and by one thing sparking, by new ideas being sparked, okay? 
So that all sounds a bit removed, but uh, once I started to go pull on the thread of what is the power of creativity as applying to everyday life and beyond the scope of artists, and what does that, you know, in terms of people being able to work with the creative principle in their own lives, whether they're, you know, new immigrants or people trying to create uh, something new for their community or even a new business or, you know, a center of app development, doesn't matter. What would happen if we got that happening? And secondly, what does it mean in a country like Canada, which is the most uh, diverse or a city like Toronto, the most diverse city on the planet? Canada one, now, you know, becoming one of the most diverse countries on the planet. What happens when you put that incredible influx of culture together with freeing up and supporting people and using their creative faculties to create something new, right? So it's really about, in a way, creating the structure and the, uh, the tools to help people do something that happens naturally over 50 or 100 years still with me so if yeah. that's the case then the question is what do we actually have in this city what is the, what is the resource that exists in the city because we don't just have me you know Ashkenazic Jewish background growing up in the states you Moroccan parents were you born here in Morocco no no born in Morocco born in Morocco so born in Morocco come here like you know you've had a very particular uh, work life creative life you know, partly because it's different from everybody else's, you know, stand-up comic, uh, broadcaster, producer, blah, 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 radio dude. Um, and you bring a particular perspective and knowledge base, and it is not separate from what you are carrying, right? You've used what you are carrying yeah. from who your parents are, you know, and yeah, yeah. like as people, but also culturally, right? As I have, as everybody else does and the thing is that i began to realize is that uh people are carrying all of this untapped knowledge um and this is as true for somebody a farmer from wawa ontario as it is from you know uh uh like a mother and you know home creator from uh afghanistan it doesn't really matter or uh or a molecular biologist from Hyderabad or whatever, right? Right, or they, break, a, they break themselves with. But what themselves contains is right. a world, right? right? It is a universe that has knowledge about everything that we need to know. So there's, of course, their training, there's their cultural background, there's, you know, there's re their religious background, but there's also their, their lived experience of what works, right? One of the things I've become aware of more, the longer I've lived aware of is the way that we, we think that we're perceiving stuff with our mind, right? That our mind is what makes sense of everything. My experience is that the most, informa most important information comes through our whole, for, through our bodies, right? And that there is a knowledge of what works that is, involves your entire system. So if you walk into public, space if you walk into a public space compare walking into i don't know even the eaton center which is actually more beautiful than a lot of malls say uh or 
you know, one of those glass and steel canyons downtown, walk down one of those streets in your mind and compare it of walking through, you know, the Shuk in Jerusalem or, you know, what's it called in Fez, the big market there. Medina. The Medina. The old city. Yeah. Yeah. Walk through that. Walk through, you know, walk through a piazza in in, uh, Italy. Yeah. Or, you know, or a market in West Africa. Compare these things. Compare, uh, and you'll note, or, you know, what it's like to drive through any Canadian suburb where it is plastic and and concrete and uh, and endlessly replicated, ugly um, uh, chain things that you can't even tell where you are. There's no specificity. Yeah. So all that to say, you're perceiving all of that through your body, and there's a body uh, knowing that tells us when we're in a space that is life giving or life sucking. Um, and that is something that is shared by every human being and every human culture. And it's one of thousands of, you could call it data points that we all know something about. So if, and it's practical, this is not just some idea, it's practical because if we're looking at uh, building a space that supports creativity, that supports commerce, that supports human and social connection, that supports interaction between groups, whether it's uh, cultures, languages, religions, genders, age, whatever, right? Uh, And supports those interrelationships. um, We all know something about what that takes. If we pay attention to what the richness that lives inside of us and the culture that we're carrying with us, if we know how to access that, it becomes raw material of creating something new. And that's true whether it's public space, how to make a community business work, how to deal with social services. Like there's a knowledge that we all have yeah. that relates to this stuff. You know, it's, I keep thinking, even though I never met your father, that I'm hearing part of your father right now. I think you are. I think you're hearing my father 2.0, you know, <laughs> in a sense that uh, he had clearly had skills and interests and experience I don't have. But I, I would say that he might have understood some of this intuitively. Like I've, I've expanded the scope because his thinking process was very political. Yes, but he was uh, as a professor and then an, as an organizer and, and as a Jew and all these other things, yeah. he, he didn't like you. He didn't decide there was one label and I better stick to it and everybody will get confused if I don't just keep telling them I'm this thing. Right. No question. Right? And no that, question. that's so much you to me. Yeah. <laughs> that it's just like, yeah, like I, I play a mean trumpet. Like, let's not kid ourselves. I've really put a lot of work into this thing. Yeah. Uh, and you, you play beautiful music with great musicians. But there's this other yearning in there that we, sh- we all are in this together. And yes. I've got to find a way to help us get in this thing together. Now, some people would argue, oh, just play the music. That'll make people feel like they're in it together. But sometimes to me that music can be a moment a very nice spiritual moment that people can get listening to something but it's not a sustainable community of people coming together in ritualized fashion to create something bigger and better than themselves that's right Right? yes and i'll say to jump to the present that in a way i've kind of discovered a place that for me uh um in a specific way, it 
it has all that more than anywhere I've ever been, and that's New Orleans. How'd that um, happen? How did it happen that I went there, or that it, or that this has become this thing for you? Oh well, it became this for me because I went there. I mean, there uh, a little more than a year ago, I was actually part of a project that was nominated for a Grammy uh, called Yiddish Glory, and the organizers of that project uh, were really generous and and sort of received the nomination in a way that allowed the artists who were part of it to be included, right? Because they could have made it, well, just the producer is going to be involved or we're going to get the artists involved. And they chose to get the artists involved. Uh, so that meant that we were all invited. And I took my daughter, uh, who loves music, um, and we went there. And we had a great time. And I was originally supposed to go visit my nephew in Northern California afterwards. I'd already bought my daughter a ticket home. And then that fell through because it turned out he wasn't going to be there. And so I had four days I had blocked aside, uh, blocked off. Um, and I thought, where am I going to go? And I was a, a Toronto, well, he was Toronto-based for about 10 years, named Chris Butcher, trombone player, who used to, who found, co-founded the Heavyweights Brass Band, really great musician. Uh, and he's been in New Orleans for three or four years. And we had done stuff together and I was sitting with his band a bunch and he said, you got to come to New Orleans because you're going to really dig it. And so this was my opportunity. So I went there in the, it was the period leading up to Mardi Gras of 2019. Um, and it blew my mind. Hmm. Like it literally was like, oh, this is fucking heaven. <laughs> me. Like this is, this is, you know, like this is like the place I've always been looking for in a sense because it's got street culture, right? You experience the parade, because, you know, people get the wrong idea that Mardi Gras is one day. It's like two and a half months, right. uh, no, a month and a half. Um, it starts around January 8th and goes until like late February. Um, and there's an increasing amount of stuff going on, parades and second lines and mini festivals and, you know, events and balls and all this stuff. So I experienced Cru de Vue, which is one of the, um, uh, which has a component called Cru de Jou. There's quite actually a strong Jewish uh, presence there in wow. some of these celebrations. It's really nice. Um, but the thing that I immediately got was this is what I have been dancing around for my whole life. And here it is in a place where it is living. So what was the most important thing to me when I created the Ashkenaz Festival? Was the Ashkenaz Parade. Was getting people into the street in a participatory way, right? That's the thing I've always been interested in. Yes, I love being an artist on stage and you know sharing my own creation and my colleagues creation where people are sitting and listening and receiving it and I like you know the good reviews or whatever um uh you know the sort of response in that sense of being a professional but really the thing that gets my 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 insides going the most is when everybody is doing it when right. everybody's participating and there was you know I did a lot of work even in the Oscars festival to try and make it like that so here I am in a place where everybody knows the tunes in a sense, in the widest sense of that, right? Everybody knows the tunes, everybody knows the moves, every, it's part of everyone's life. And it isn't even just leading up to Mardi Gras, I begin to realize it goes on all year. And it's something that is woven into the fabric of the place. So, you know, so partly because as it happens, I'm on this strange quasi, or I was on this strange quasi sabbatical for about eight months, it, uh, it allowed me to go to New Orleans for last 
May and June. And then I really started to get a sense of the place. And I was fortunate enough to get connected with the Treme Brass Band, which is one of the iconic black brass bands. And the black band, uh, black brass band tradition is really the core of the New Orleans jazz tradition. Uh, so it really began opening my eyes to what this culture was and how woven it was into everybody's life and to experience jazz for the first time as a folk music, like a living right, right. folk music that is clearly rooted and, you know, like given its spark from the African-American community, but which is also uh, about what people like to call the gumbo of New Orleans life. So um, for me, it was a profoundly, has been a profoundly spiritual experience uh, to just hang with and play with and listen to and dance to this music that is alive for people, right? Because they every single Sunday in the black community, pretty much there is a second line, which evolved out of the funeral tradition, but now is its own thing. And it's like a three or four or five hour parade with up to thousands of people with large brass band or brass bands with sort of the uh, featured dancers who are people can see who are in costume and are dancing. And then everybody, uh, old, young kids, seniors, people in wheelchairs, people running, young people, people showing off, people dancing like crazy and drinking and, you know, guys pulling uh, their kids uh, wagons full of beer and ice that they're selling, you know, it's just like <laughs> an old lady selling food by the side. It's just the most organic, uh, it is like a very specific take on diasporic genius, right? Yeah. The public, yeah. the public's, the public uh, sphere full of life that is driven by the grassroots and can't be owned and, and persists in the face yeah. of everything, incredible racism, poverty, you know, like it is, it's tearing me up inside that, that you, you know, across America in general, but especially in New Orleans, that the vast majority of the people who are dying from uh, COVID-19 are black yeah, because of all the comorbidities and the, you know, centuries and vulnerability. of vulnerability, climate change, also yeah. climate change. Yeah. You know? I mean, all that stuff. Will there be a new Orleans in 50? Well, years? you know, the thing is, who knows? The thing is that it's amazing that it came back after Katrina and there are all kinds of challenges. And there's all, you know, there has been gentrification and Airbnbism and all this stuff, yeah. which on a certain level, people are saying, yeah, this is fucking up these traditional neighborhoods, but it doesn't go away. Like people are doing it and the kids there, it is being passed on. There are so many young people who are right in there playing the brass band music and for whom it is not, like the thing that happens in every other culture is, oh, that's the old fogey shit. I don't have anything to do with that. That's yeah. not, what, I mean, I'm sure there's some of that in New Orleans, but there's enough people for whom this is like uh, lifeblood. And it means that there are, these are people with incredible dignity and incredible self-possession, I feel like, because their culture is so strong and it is the music and the celebration, but it's also just their sense of who they are and the magic of the place where they, their roots are so so isn't that funny there you were trying to create that against all odds in a high urban setting in the biggest yeah. city in the country and then you go down there and uh, it's like oh look it's this is what it really looks like when it comes from the ground up 
Well, and it's funny. I knew that, right? I knew it. Like it is, I, I've been aware forever about the New Orleans brass band tradition. And there's all, you know, that was kind of a model of what I, a thing I tried to get some funding for. And I never did within Diasporic Genius because I didn't say this, but we were working, most of our work was done in Thorncliffe Park. Right. Uh, you know, a sort of just close suburb uh, uh, neighborhood of Toronto, which is uh, the most diverse neighborhood in North America. So, um, and we did a lot of festivals and stuff that involved parading around and, you know, the street, trying to bring some feeling of the street. Um, so I was very aware of that model. I just hadn't experienced it direct, directly. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I knew what it was. I knew the vibe. I knew the history. But to actually, you know, taste it and touch it, kind of feel it in that way has been really um, uh, profoundly, I don't know if it's transformative, but it's just deepened something. And yeah, uh, yeah. not surprisingly, I have, you know, I, partly through this sort of sabbatical action and, um, and also uh, now in this period of enforced like solitude, I am diving back into this. I have been diving and now I'm even further diving into the study of jazz in a way I haven't done in years. Hmm. And I think I might finally, uh, you know, be uh, imbibing the core because the thing that playing with these guys in New Orleans did for me is to teach me the core, the root, like the base of the feel of the rhythmic, right. uh, the rhythmic um, approach to this music that is behind all subsequent jazz. Wow. Isn't it lovely getting older? Jesus, man. I'm like, I keep going like, when's that time going to come where I'm like sitting on the rocking chair? I don't see it, I don't see <laughs> yeah, it coming but, anytime soon, you know? No, but it ain't a rocking chair. That's the beauty of it. It's a synthesized wisdom. It's yes. cultivating the experience of your life. Yeah. All those things you've described in this in this hour together, it's, it's almost like it's the logical conclusion would have been the epiphany in New Orleans. Right. And then the deepening of your own already very high level of... Yes, your skill is very high, your feeling is very high, and now you feel like you've added a spiritual Lego piece here that yeah. makes the thing work. You yeah, know? no, and that and that makes me well. I mean, I've always had, I've always been somebody who always feels like I'm just starting out. Good. Now, now I still even more feel like I'm just starting well, out. Well, that's the Buddhist and, thing, the beginner mind, right? Like is that a thing? Always, I don't yeah, you that. always have to have the beginner's mind. Not once we feel like we know things, right? We stop listening. And we go, no, 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 that's not how you do it. That's not how you play that 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 riff. Play it like this. Instead of just what's my beginner's mind, I'm playing this riff for the first time this day, this moment. Right? Yeah. And there's so much to look forward to because there's so much yeah. to learn. There's so much to learn. And I feel like I feel like that is totally uh, uh, alive in the New Orleans vibe, right? They have real a profound respect for their elders there. That right, we feel young because they're guys in their late seventies, early eighties, laying it down. Like you know, and yeah. they're they're not they don't have any interest or desire or pretensions to do something innovative. They want to freaking uh, inhabit that groove like their ancestors did, and as deeply as they can. And I, I introduced the Preservation Hall Jazz Band at the Montreal Jazz Festival once for CBC Radio, and I looked at these guys and I thought, how in hell? Did they come up here to do this gig? They're 83 years old, 87 yeah. years old, 91 years old. And then the next time they came, three of them were missing. 
Right. Well, they passed you know. away, and there were <laughs> yeah. some younger guys who were 75 years old in the band, and I just thought, this is a way of life. This isn't a gig. This is well, and there's how a they thing, live. There's a thing you get to, right? There's a thing you get to. Like, um, uh, Tremé uh, Brassman, the leader, is a guy named Benny Jones, who also, he's a very important dude, and he's uh, probably in his late 70s. I'm worried about him, I have to say, all those cats. But... Um, I was in touch with his sort of second in command, Vernon, yesterday, uh, who told me he was having a good time drinking some beers and Jack Daniels with his, his <laughs> childhood, childhood friend who I met, who they call the governor. Um, and he said, everybody's all right. But, uh, um, you know, Benny Jones has been doing this since he was five. Right. And he's 80 and his groove is unassailable. And you could never notate, I mean, it's true of any kind of great music, but it is so astounding what he does, the magic that he creates with no effort, right? He sits on a stool and just like he hardly moves and it like moves the entire room. And I, I, I love when people do stuff like that. There was a guitarist. We used, I used to be in this horrible cover band and we had a really good guitarist for a while. And the first time he played with us, I was hearing this incredible lead. And I'm looking around the stage because there were two guitarists and I'm thinking, who's doing that? And one guy's, you know, pounding away on rhythm, and I realize it's the other guy, and he hasn't moved a muscle right. in ten minutes, and yeah, he is exactly. just killing it, absolutely yeah. killing it. Well, I, I think that 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 goes up the older you get. Like yeah. I think of this. Um, uh, I spent three weeks, a number of years ago, in Havana on a research trip, and uh, ended up falling in with this guy who was a music promoter. We spent some days together. Anyway, through through him, I went to hear. Uh, Septeto Habanero, which was, you know, they were part of the number of bands like in the 30s who created Son, which is the core of all Afro-Cuban dance music. Um, and these, some of these guys, these were younger guys who probably came in in the 40s or 50s or whatever, but they were in their 80s. And the bass player looked like a combination of a pear and a bulldog. <laughs> and he was, he was sitting on, you know, he was sitting on a tall stool bit kind of slumped like this he looked like he was about to melt into the ground and you could almost couldn't see his fingers move but he lay down the heaviest tumbao you know like rhythmic bass part i've ever heard in my life you know, Great. Like, fantastic like, yeah so we have something to look forward to ralph yeah well god willing um let's play one piece of music on the way out the door uh something from uh odessa havana yeah well actually this is perfect uh segue because um, uh, unlike uh, a lot of the Ola Savannah, which is a project that is a combination of the compositional approach of myself and Hilario Duran, who's one of the great living Cuban piano players and composers, <clears throat> and we're lucky to have him in Toronto, um, we each kind of imbibed the other's music and then began writing music that relates to the historic confluence of Afro-Cuban and Jewish music which nobody knows about, but I discovered and is a real thing. I didn't just make it up. Uh, and so a lot of the music that you hear is very blended and you, you very hard to identify, oh, this is Jewish or it's Cuban or whatever, because it's our writing. This piece, I'm pretty sure I gave you one called Odd Divine, right? Is that what you got there? Yep. Okay. Uh, yep. Yeah. So this is actually my, it's the very most Cuban sounding thing on it. And it's my composition that's an homage to... Uh, to Arsenio Rodriguez, Rodriguez, who's one of the 
like the Septeto Abanero, he's the, one of the inventors of son. He was a blind tresero, played the tress uh, in the 30s and a band leader. Um, and he's a guy who blew past boundaries because at the time, uh, Afro-Cubans weren't allowed to play in public for white hmm. people. Hmm. And uh, he was the first person to get through that um, and to be a, a important band leader. And he changed everything about Cuban music. So this is my homage to him, which is sort of built on a piece of his called Adivinalo, and I call it Adivine. David Bookbinder, thank you very much. Continue to blow past the boundaries, my friend. I, I, I love what you do. Thank you, uh, Ralph. And take care of yourself and your family and everyone else. And uh, I hope you get to go back to Nawlings as soon as you possibly can for more. Thank of you. Thank you. And, uh, fruit. and uh, when we can get off, off the Zoom, let's see each other in the flesh. We'll do a Shabbos together. Okay. Beautiful. All right. You take Thank care. You. Okay. Bye.
David Bookbinder, Odessa Havana, the Juno award-winning Odessa Havana. I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is not that kind of rabbi. If you want to get in touch with me, go to ralphbenmergi at gmail.com and send me a note. Tell me if you're enjoying the programming we're doing. Lots of lovely things are said about the show on uh, Twitter and Facebook, so you can join in that way. And please subscribe if you find it of interest to you, because uh, we love doing it and we want to create more wonderful conversations with great Canadians about interesting spiritual lives as much as we can. Take care of each other. We'll see you soon. Bye.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number 